Welcome to The Safety Break, the Whitewater Rescue Podcast. We're here to share stories of real river accidents and rescues and find expert advice on how to solve the problems you might encounter in the Whitewater River environment. I'm your host, Jack Diddy, an emergency medicine physician, whitewater paddler, and wilderness medicine educator. Together, I hope we can celebrate successful rescues and learn from our mistakes in a supportive environment. If you have a story to share of a non-fatal accident or rescue, send me an email at thesafetybreak at gmail.com or contact me on our Facebook page, The Safety Break. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button and follow us on social media. I hope you learned something valuable in the show. Beautiful scenery, hiking in through banana fields, basalt rock formations. It was that feeling that every paddler's had where, you know, you kind of are past the last crux. It's all like home free, you just don't do anything stupid. Really aerated, massive boil line, which is tough to overcome. So it pulled me back in towards the curtain. More and more I was getting less and less air because of the aeration. Over the next 30 to 45 seconds, he was underwater half that time, and then he went limp. And then all of a sudden, boom, lights out. In this episode, we return to the Rio Jalisco in Mexico, where Yuri Vala's life hangs in the balance. In part one, we heard about him getting worked over in a powerful hydraulic, exiting his kayak, and recirculating in the hole for several minutes. During this time, he was mostly under the surface of the aerated water, struggling to find a way out, and eventually lost consciousness. As he floated limp in the water, his close friend Andy Perkel and the other paddlers on scene orchestrated a quick live bait rescue. They pulled him out of the narrow exit of the cauldron and onto the riverbank. Yuri was unresponsive and had no signs of life, pulseless and not breathing. We're going to hear about the process they went through to revive him and review in detail the treatment guidelines for drowning resuscitation. One thing to note before we get started, CPR guidelines change as medical science progresses. So be aware that the information presented here is current as of February 2023, and it is meant as a supplement to and not a replacement for formal CPR training. As a word of caution, this content may be disturbing for some listeners. Let's resume the story here. Yuri had been struggling in the water for about four minutes then essentially underwater and unconscious for about two minutes. When he was pulled from the water, Andy described him as unresponsive, with grayish-blue color, and no respiratory effort. I went down to water level and pulled him just into my lap by his life jacket, and I put breaths in right away. We stripped off his life jacket and helmet as I was putting breaths in and the life jacket was coming off and we uh, had some people alternating some compressions and I was doing the rescue breathing guys doing the compressions um, they looked like they were textbook their first action when removing Yuri from the water was to provide immediate rescue breathing and quickly move him to a more stable spot with a hard flat surface under his back to initiate chest compressions a pulse check confirmed that he had no pulse Just as they did here, the American Heart Association guidelines for drowning recommend immediate rescue breathing as the first action. You should give five initial breaths, followed immediately by chest compressions, with a ratio of 30 compressions to two breaths, 
and repeating this cycle until a pulse check at two minutes with minimal interruptions. If you have enough people on hand, it's helpful to have someone in a leadership role helping to guide the resuscitation and looking at the big picture. In that situation, it's extremely chaotic. Uh, everybody, no matter how much training they have, is out of their wheelhouse to one degree or another because that's a singularly unique situation in all respects. I mean, the few brief disagreements that there were about things were exactly what they needed to be. They were opinion interjections, disagreement, but the resolution was promptly attained and everybody got back to doing what they were supposed to be doing. Rescue breathing involves several quick steps. The patient should be positioned with the head tilt chin lift maneuver to obtain a good open airway. If there is a high likelihood of a neck injury, then a jaw thrust is indicated instead. Unless there was a high speed impact with a rock or other evidence of significant head or neck trauma, C-spine immobilization is less of a concern for most whitewater drowning victims and should not really delay appropriate CPR. Andy describes managing his airway and the rescue breathing here. It was pretty reasonably easy, you know, by the, tipping the chin back with the, you know, index finger um, and pinching the nose, you kind of had a really good ability to hold the head pretty stable. I mean, it was almost like the hand that was holding the nose was also pushing down on the forehead into the ground. So he he was remarkably stable in the position he was in, and um, it, it wasn't that difficult to, you know, it's primarily about, you know, making sure the airway was open, having a good seal. I do remember at a time that I, you know, it was, it was, I was trying to move too fast and maybe I lost some air through one of the sides of my mouth. And, and I really, you know, it's just a very simple slow down. In this case, Andy recognized a problem that may be unique to whitewater paddler drowning victims. He noticed that he was having trouble delivering breaths, meeting some resistance due to the constriction from Yuri's dry top gasket. Keep this in mind if you're ever in a similar situation, as it seems like it made a significant difference in this case. If you're going to cut a dry top gasket with a knife, make sure to approach from the back of the neck and cut away from the body. I could tell that when we had him positioned that there was um, some back resistance and I knew that there shouldn't be. And at first, when I first felt it, I thought that maybe I didn't have his neck positioned super well and went to try to open the trachea by straightening his neck. And um, But that, that didn't, didn't solve it. And then I realized that, well, he's got something, he's got like a rubber band around his throat. He, his body is not using his muscles to create rigidity in place that there probably is rigidity when you're old, like conscious. So, um, so that's when I decided to cut that off. So I just went on the side of his neck, pulled a handful of gasket in my hand and just sliced it back uh, using sort of that hook type knife. One other thing to note, there is no role for any unusual maneuvers to try to clear water from the airway. Many victims will have either water, mucus, or frothy sputum, or even vomit visible in the airway. There is no need to do any Heimlich maneuver, back blows, or other techniques to deal with this, and may actually cause more harm. Just position the airway and give breaths. You pinch the nose, and form a seal with your mouth to the victims, and provide a breath for one to two seconds, enough to see visible chest rise. Chest compression should be paused briefly for the ventilations and then immediately resumed.
After troubleshooting the issue with his airway, they continued through several cycles of CPR. We were doing, uh, at that time, 2 and 15, and so, um, so I would give the 2, and then I'd look to them, they'd go right in behind me, and it was just, it, the rhythm was perfect. Um, I don't, I'm sure the ratio wasn't right. In my head, what was going on was that I, I still was in that frame of mind that, hey, this is a pulmonary arrest primarily, so like we're going to increase the breaths relative, but the speed of this is going to operate at a good tempo. And I would imagine that the amount of cycles that we had, we probably, we probably underrated how many cycles there were on our trip report. Things were moving awfully quickly, but my guess is like 100 compressions um, per minute and probably somewhere more like, you know, 10 breaths per minute, partially because we were all highly hopped up on adrenaline and moving quickly. I don't know that it made much, would make much of a difference whether we were doing two breaths and 10 compressions or two breaths and 15 compressions. I don't know if getting it perfect is as important as making a decision. I think Andy's right. You should learn how to do this correctly but in the heat of the moment, just do the best you can and don't get too bent out of shape about exact numbers. Focus on high-quality chest compressions at a rate to deliver about 100 to 120 per minute. You should push hard and fast on the mid to lower aspect of the sternum, with each compression at least two inches deep and allowing complete recoil after each. Pulse checks should occur every two minutes and only take about 10 seconds or less to minimize the interruption to CPR. If anyone in your group has an EpiPen available, the type that people carry to treat allergic reactions, this would be a good time to use it as well. Epinephrine is generally recommended as part of the resuscitation for all types of cardiac arrest. AEDs are often helpful in cardiac arrest as well, but are not routinely available in most whitewater drownings, and shockable rhythms are uncommon in this setting. If an AED becomes available, you should hook it up to check, but don't delay CPR to find one. In this case, after several minutes of CPR, they felt a pulse, and Yuri started to come around. continued through compressions and breathing. Then as I was checking pulse, Yuri's pulse resumed. And so there was a brief disagreement about whether you should continue compressions after the heart was beating, and but there wasn't any sign of actual breath. And so um, that situation resolved with, let's let the heart beat on its own while we continue rescue breathing and see if maybe he chokes up some water or, uh, you know, we weren't quite sure how and why that was happening, but the pulse was clear, it was there. And I put in three breaths and his nostrils flared. And then within maybe 10, 15 seconds, he had taken a real like actual deep breath. His skin color started to come back. This was another thing they did right. If a victim's pulse returns, but no adequate breathing, rescue breaths should continue at a rate of about one every six seconds, or 10 per minute, until spontaneous breathing resumes. Once this happens, turn the patient on their side in the recovery position. Yuri has an interesting recollection of this phase of the resuscitation, and it almost seems like his friend's voice convinced him to make a conscious decision to start breathing again, which he describes here. It was dark like completely dark i was in this totally ambivalent <laughs> relaxed state i've never been that relaxed that i could remember 
and calm, you know? And the quiet was tremendous, like, it's a quiet you never really hear, you know? Maybe out skiing in a whiteout way out in the woods and where the snow insulates all sound, maybe that's as close as, as I've ever been, but just absolutely quiet and calm. And then Andy kind of jarred me. <laughs> hearing voices and at first it's kind of like another language you know and then I started realizing hey that's Andy you know what's what's going on what's he doing you know that kind of tethered me to reality and and where I was then things started really firing and it's almost like it really builds on itself first I recognize Andy's voice and then everybody else and then I started remembering where I was and what was happening and all of a sudden, you know, there, there's a lot more clarity. It's, you know, like I said, I was in this dark darkness and all of a sudden these lights started coming on. And, you know, eventually I opened my eyes and I knew exactly where I was. So long before I could see anything or really realize where I was, I, I could hear these voices. And it seemed like it was a long time. It wasn't, I'm sure, but it felt like it was 10, 15 minutes of voices. And it was soothing, you know, it was really, it was calming and reassuring. That, that's one of the most important things, I think, that really grounded me in the reality of what was going on and brought me back. It was amazing how fast he evolved from looking and seeming completely dead. I mean, I was talking to him and asking him questions and he was responding with blinks and, you know, within a minute of his first cognitive response with some blinks, I started asking him questions and he had, you know, verbal answers. And ultimately he was standing. Yeah, I think it was, we said it was 14 minutes later. There are several factors that allowed Yuri to make such a quick recovery. He was one of the lucky ones that didn't aspirate much, if any, water into his lungs. This phenomenon has been described in many drowning victims. Even when underwater and unconscious, it is possible for the lungs to remain somewhat protected by the lack of respiratory effort and by uncontrolled spasm or closure of the vocal cords. When this happens, victims will likely have less lung injury and a less complicated recovery. Significant aspiration can make the recovery a lot more difficult. It's beyond the scope of this discussion, but it's interesting to read about the mammalian diving reflex and wonder what role it may play in all of this as well. The other thing in Yuri's favor was the quick action by his friends. There are two main predictors of survival for drowning victims, submerged time in the water and time to resuscitative efforts. In this case, the crew made a very quick water rescue and then immediate CPR. All of them had formal training in CPR. Remarkably, Andy's CPR training occurred about 15 years prior to this event, but he was still able to recall the necessary technical details and ultimately save his friend's life. I felt like, you know, my hands, and you know, were doing all of the things that my training and, you know, my, my brain thought should happen. But my, I, I, usually in a situation like that, that approximates that I'm very focused. There's no periphery, time slows down, and my focus goes to 110%. And what I was finding was that 
in between things like breaths, my mind was wandering into some, you know, some strange places like, oh, crap, I'm, you know, like I have to talk to his wife, like, oh, my God, what am I going to tell this, you know, this person, you know, how are we getting out of here? What are we going to do for a recovery? Like all of these peripheral and superfluous thoughts that, um, you know, were unproductive and I couldn't get them out. I couldn't get them out of my mind. And that is that's just very unusual for me personally. And so the reason I mention that is because I think that the training, even if somebody only does a CPR first aid course or something like that, just the fact that you've done it and you have some muscle memory for it, I don't know what made it so that my hands were all consistently doing the right things, but I can tell you that the training didn't hurt. I think this illustrates how important it is for every paddler to take at least one CPR or basic life support course. These courses are cheap, widely available, and only take a few hours of your time. A quick internet search on the Red Cross website will help you find a course in your area. The courses teach CPR for general cardiac arrest, a slightly different scenario. And due to time constraints with the course, they may not focus on the specific aspects of drowning. The technical hands-on skills, however, are the same. If you spend much time around water, you should learn the basic techniques taught in the BLS courses and then become familiar with the best practices for CPR for drowning. I provided links on our Facebook site to the AHA guidelines and the Wilderness Medical Society guidelines for drowning resuscitation. So let's get back to the story. Once Fury was awake and functional, the crew still had to figure out how to safely get him to the takeout and how to assess him for further complications. And then it was a matter of, you know, getting out of there. I felt like I could paddle out, but they didn't, they didn't want me to, and plus I lost my paddle, so that didn't help. They kind of created a litter out of kayaks, and, uh, you know, we waded across the river, and um, they were, you know, they took a lot of precautions. We got to the takeout. Fortunately, Adventure Wreck, rather than having their shuttle truck come down there, they had like a fast car, one of their employees come down there. They wanted to get me to the hospital as quickly as possible. And I, I do remember getting in that car and this guy racing up these switchback and just high speed, like drifting around the corners. But it's a dirt road, I think. And all these banana fields, you know? <laughs> That was probably actually the scariest part of the day. Despite his ordeal, Yuri was actually feeling pretty well, with just a cough and some pain from the rib fractures associated with the chest compressions. This is a common and generally expected complication from CPR and does not typically cause much harm. It's a story for another day if you run into these guys, but they had an interesting encounter with the healthcare system of rural Mexico. They were eventually able to get a chest x-ray, which showed no evidence of lung injury. It's a good idea for drowning victims who are resuscitated to be evaluated in a medical facility, and ideally monitored for about four to six hours for complications. If no significant symptoms at that point, further decompensation is unlikely. The other scenario you may encounter is the victim that survives the initial CPR, but remains very unstable, with significant lung injury, difficulty breathing and persistent hypoxia, low blood pressure, or persistent brain injury. These are likely going to require a full-scale rescue response and significant external resources to help evacuate from the river environment, and often have a prolonged and complicated recovery. Yuri ultimately made a complete recovery. As Andy tells it, 
you know, he was no more neurologically impaired than he was three hours earlier when we put on the river, which isn't to say that his brain works perfectly, but it worked the same as it did before. Yuri credited his survival to several factors. His fitness level at the time, his generally calm and optimistic demeanor, and most importantly, the stellar efforts of his friends. He also wanted to emphasize several key learning points from his experience. I think we got roughly six, six key points here. Um, and both from the perspective of the victim and the rescuers. Um, first of all, paddle only with the people that you would trust your life with. Um, that, that's paramount. Everyone has to be, you know, on point and know exactly what to do. You know, all of us were trained in CPR. Um, couple had woofer training. Secondly, don't underestimate any piece of whitewater. Look at things objectively every single time, you know, um, and don't look at rapids relative to other rapids. And I think that was one of the biggest mistakes here. I became more complacent with that drop because it was, you know, nothing like dungeon, you know. Maybe the most important thing if you're in this situation is never give up. Don't even let it enter your mind. It didn't once cross my mind that I was drowning, you know? It's like when, when you're skiing trees, you don't look at the trees, you look at the spaces between the trees and the path between the trees. Kayaking too, you don't look at the boulders, you look at the path between the boulders, you look at the tongue. You know, focusing on only those things that are, that are gonna promote the outcome that you want. And, you know, in the safety scenario, kind of quickly size it up, move as quickly as possible, um, have a team that's prepared. Every second counts in this situation. And from the rescue's perspective, you know, keep talking to the victim. I, I can't stress that enough. I was out and unconscious and I was in this, this bizarre place, somewhere between, you know, consciousness and unconsciousness and this world and somewhere else. And the thing that brought me back was voices and then familiar voices that tethered me to the re reality of where I was. Those are some great points, especially the last one. Keep communicating with the victim, even if it seems they are beyond hope. You have no idea what's going on in their head. And in this case, it seems like it convinced Yuri to return from whatever dream world he was in. Before we wrap this up, we need to take a reality check here. Yuri's outcome was unusual. Most people that get CPR don't survive. If you're involved in one of these scenarios, you need to be aware of the realistic expectations about the outcome. Victims that have been submerged for more than 10 minutes have a limited chance of neurologic recovery, but you've still got to give your best effort. If the victim was submerged for more than 30 minutes or greater than 25 minutes of unsuccessful CPR, CPR is often considered futile at that point. There are some exceptions to this with extremely cold water or profound hypothermia. After crossing this strange threshold and returning, Yuri was left with a lot to contemplate. When I, when I came out of this, I literally look at every day I'm on the earth as an opportunity to enjoy it.
I don't take anything for granted. Every sunset, I try to make sure I'm there to see it. I love sunsets. And I try to relish when I'm up in the mountains, you know, just hearing the birds and just experiencing everything to its fullest. We all come to things with our own life experience and our beliefs. And a lot of times in these, what you call a, a death experience or near death, you hear people say, I was removed from my body and I was floating above it and I could see people working on me or I, I saw a white light and I was moving towards it. I find that really interesting. My, my experience was very different. It's interesting and I've thought a lot about do we experience these things based on the, our belief system and what we take to it? And I, I kind of I kind of feel like for me the answer is yes. I think that's the case. Um, or are there different experiences, period, you know? And is there like a whole spectrum of experiences you could have when this happens? Or was I not dead enough to have that other experience, you know? Um, it's, it, it's hard to say. We'll, we'll all know one day. <laughs> Hopefully not too soon. Thanks for listening today. I want to thank my good friend Zach Frazier for the tip about this story. And I want to thank my guests, Yuri Vala and Andy Perkel, for sharing it with us. I hope it has inspired you to learn or relearn more about this topic. If you want to hear another podcast about this topic, check out The Shuttle Drive from April 10th, 2022, where Wade Harrison interviews Floyd Miracle. He's a paramedic and a paramedic trainer and had some interesting insights into performing CPR on drowning victims. Now go out there and sign up this week for a CPR course. Let's make it seem just as essential as learning to roll or learning the perfect forward stroke. It should be a part of every paddler's training. If you feel this podcast is worthwhile, please take a moment to like or follow on our Facebook site, The Safety Break. This will help me know who is listening out there, and you can see all of our updates and links to important information presented with each episode. Then share this Facebook site or the podcast link with any of your paddling friends. As part of this story, we heard about a live bait rescue, but skipped over a lot of the details about it. In our next episode, we will be doing a full exploration of that topic. I hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening to The Safety Break, the Whitewater Rescue Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button click follow on our Facebook page so we know that you're out there. I'm also looking for more stories. If you know of an interesting non-fatal river accident or rescue, send me a few details by email, safetybreak at gmail.com. It doesn't have to be dramatic or life-threatening, just something that we all might be able to learn from. I'll see if we can turn it into an episode. Stay safe out there, and I hope to see you on the river.